Danny, what are you wearing? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> And oddly enough, that'll probably be the answer every single time. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, for whatever reason today, I, I've been getting a lot of ads online for, um, I don't even want to say the brand because I don't want to sound like a shill or anything. I don't care about the brand. But like basically this brand of shorts that is clearly like Lululemon, but for men. <laughs> and it made me realize like, oh, I'm actually like that's, I'm exactly in that target market now. I'm a stay at home dad. I I'm trying to work out a bunch of times. I mostly wear athletic shorts every day now. Yep. Like I see no reason to dress up in any nice way at all. Like, oh yeah. And yeah. Uh, here we are. I know that feeling. I don't think I put on pants today. No, that's not true. I went to Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in Southern Indiana, in Walmart, uh, <laughs> I probably could have got away with it. Probably could have got they would there would have been weirder things in that Walmart today That's right. than you not wearing pants. <laughs> Walmart sees some stuff. Yep. I try to avoid it as much as possible, but uh I had to go get ink for my printer today. Oh yeah. So I could print my new character sheet and make a new character sheet. <gasps> <laughs> That's right. We are playing D and D this weekend. Heck yeah, we are. Oh, it's gonna be so good. Yeah, I'm so hyped. I'm so excited. Yes. And this is our first time playing in person in forever. Forever. And that's actually, I, I'm actually probably more excited about the fact we're playing in person than the fact we're starting a new campaign, new character, anything like that. Just because Roll20 does its best to be a nice replacement or like a, a fallback. But it's just not the same. No, I hate it. And I mean, I've known that for before we even started this because there was a few that I had to miss. Because of weather yeah. or whatever. And I tried the online stuff. I tried to play from the computer. And it's just, it's awful. I do not enjoy it. It's especially hard if you're, I, I imagine, like, I, I think it's unbearable if you're the only person on it and everybody else is around the <laughs> yeah. table. I can't see how, it's just like, why bother? Like, I, I didn't envy your position there. Yeah. Because I, I wouldn't have signed on. But even, you, you were a better person than me. But even when we were all doing it, like we reached the end of this last campaign and it was just like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I feel like it probably would have been way, way more dramatic in person. Yeah, absolutely. We would have gotten way more hype energy. Because yep. there was a little bit of that. Like there, I think there was still – it was a fun – there were still some fun moments, right? Like we, I think we still liked that – like this is this is the big climactic thing of this chunk of story. But it was just not nearly as good. Yeah. As, oh, I didn't realize it. I, I honestly didn't realize that it was the end until. Oh, really? You said something oh. like halfway through, and I was like, "Oh, wait a second, that was the end, wasn't it?" Oh no, I said that at the very end of the session. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was like we were because we were kind of deciding like if we were going to start the new campaign or. Um... Well, it was it was before that because that would have made it super obvious. But yeah. Because like we did that last battle, and then we kind of did some random things around town. I was like, okay, well, we're still going, I guess. Yeah, and I think that was probably just much because uh, our DM didn't want to. Uh, I don't. Know, I can't really speak for him, I guess. But I thought. I think I thought that that was probably because he didn't want to feel like we weren't getting like a full session if we didn't play sure. for. Yeah, three or four I agree. Hours. I agree with that too. But like, yeah. I 
I just didn't realize that was the last pedal. Yeah. When we were done. I just wasn't getting the vibe from it on, on the computer. <laughs> yeah, because in person, I think we would have all like spent the next hour like making lame jokes at the big bad's expense and stuff. Like, yeah. <laughs> but we've all just like been sitting there and just be like, yeah, that feels awesome. I think there's a real sense of accomplishment in D and D. I agree. I agree. It feels good. There's that, you know, that dopamine rush. Absolutely. It, and like, <laughs> I can't even. I don't even know why because you're not like the everything's rigged in your favor as a player there's eh, yeah i guess somewhat listen i've died more than anybody ever in D <laughs> and true. i still kind of feel pretty invincible when we're in a fight <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i've been in campaigns where it's felt rigged against me oh really oh yeah not any like that we played together but okay like, did you feel way when I was DMing? Did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I will agree that most of the time it feels like our sessions go really smoothly, though. Yeah. There's, like, minor brushes with death, which keeps us a little on our toes. But, yeah, like, there's nothing super crazy, which might change with this next one, apparently. Yeah. So we're going to play Curse of Strahd. And so Burr was telling me I've, I've made a point not to read out of the book at all because I don't want to ruin anything on accident or anything like that. Um, but I guess this is based off of a story that it's like one of the original Gygax stories from the seventies. But then, um, yeah, the yeah. guy that works at wizards now that did like the port of it to five E and was like the lead producer on this, um, is Chris Perkins. So then he's even known for being kind of a, a ruthless DM and, and like makes just really hard adventures anyway so he like took a classic that that like even the even the original gary gygax one was like this is a kill your players campaign like people will fall and then the guy at wizards that's kind of the kills your players guy is the one that did it it's like i I don't think i don't think this original party is gonna make it through (laughs) i'm trying not to fall in love with my new character but it's so hard I, I fall in love with, like, every character I make, even the one-shot ones. Yeah. Agree. Maybe we just need to make some backup ones, and then we'll feel a little less attached, because, like, well, I really want this other guy to come out, too. That's true. I already had put a little thought into it. <laughs> You're ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> but see, this, this is, like, this is my favorite part, like, honestly, like, the character creation is my favorite yeah. part of D&D. So I, I've had, like, I mean, I've had, like, ten characters brewing for months are you playing any games aside from the group that we're both in no not right now did i do my did you play D with some of your kids when you were still teaching um no not regularly there was like a there's a group of kids who needed a place just to like meet up and so i would stay after school sometimes and just let them play D and every once in a while if i wasn't too busy i'd sit down and play with them but i wasn't no, that was like once or twice in like yeah. a quarter. Not often. I think it's really cool the way that um, it's become more accepted to like, like I've heard a lot of schools having D&D clubs and stuff now because it just it's a place where yeah. people can just create stuff, right? It's an inherently good thing. We don't have any more of the misconceptions about like Satanism and stuff. <laughs> sure, sure. I think whenever I settle in, if I'm back in the academic world, I'll probably try to do some kind of D&D thing again. Maybe I'll make like a 
you know, a lot of people want to, if they want to make stuff for D&D, they do like, they make adventures, they put it to Dungeon Masters Guild and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to make like an educational pack. Here's a, here's a, a curriculum <laughs> unit. Here's all the lesson plans. Here's the homework. <laughs> nice. I think, think that'll sell a lot better. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I meant more like a club thing. I could just imagine trying to put it as like a class assignment. To a oh, bunch yeah. of like middle schoolers, especially, they would just like half the class would get excited and half the class would just yes, roll their eyes absolutely. out of their head. Which to me is a good lesson because then the teacher can identify here's the kids that are going to be somebody in life. D and D is obviously, and then you also see the kids that are into D and D. I'd like, like, sorry. Oh, go ahead. You first. No, you go. You go. God dang it! Mine was just boring. I was going to talk about chess. Oh no, great. Let's talk about chess. Uh, I played like five games today, like while I was waiting to get started here, Mm -hmm. and uh, I ended up throwing my phone across the room after the last one. So that's always fun. Oh my goodness! Why do you put yourself (laughs) through this? Well, like, you get on, like, I had probably three, like, legit good games, and then you just play one that's horrible, and you're just, like, ask. And were these all bullet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So were you just playing the same person over and over? No, just, but random people on the internet. I always, like, there there were many times when I was working a jobby job that if I just needed to get away, I would step away and play, like, a five-minute game on my phone. Yeah. Um, but I would always feel bad if I did like more than that. So I feel like I always got rematched, requested, and I like never rematched anybody. When I was like, just like, I'm not going to play you again. <laughs> I got to go back to work. Yeah. I-, I could never risk doing that while I was at work because I would get angry. Like, say I was trying to do this, like, before kids because, came Because, like, in. your principal might walk in and see the turn oh, on your no. phone. <laughs> like, no. no. <laughs> Who cares about that? <laughs> No, I would just be in a bad mood for the next class. Yeah. Angry, bold man. <laughs> Angry, bold Danny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so is it just the competitiveness that makes you angry? Or... No, it's when I do something dumb. Like, uh, real dumb. It's like, like self-loathing. Hanging, yeah, hanging pieces, giving easy checkmates. I. It was something, the last game was like, he got his queen in on my king. With and like check checkmate me with a pawn and the queen. I was like, what? What did? Why? Why did I let oh. that happen? Yeah, that I, that feels terrible even just hearing it. Yeah. I I've I kind of wonder, like, what's your what is the rating level where you just never really hang pieces anymore? Because <laughs> I never got there. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, especially in the the bullet rating. I've never gotten above that around there was one point where I was around 1400 and it wasn't terrible there. And that's on, but it was still happening like around like, I don't know, maybe one in five games, somebody would hang a piece during bullet or in correspondence. Oh, bullet. Yeah. Okay. That's bullet. I think is forgivable. I think I guess I meant in slow games. Yeah. Cause I still hang stuff in, in slow games. 
yeah, I don't know about that last move you made. I might. I think it was Drosh, and now I think I might be back on top. Ah, uh, whatever. See, you're a better chess player than me. I don't know. That's why I wanted you to take the draw. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, the move I made, I, I haven't looked at the position since I moved. So if you've moved, I, then you're ahead of me. But the move I made, I actually, like, I had planned on doing something else after you did the move that you did. Well, because, like, you were forced to do the last move, but the move mm-hmm. before. And I saw this move, like, later. I had not anticipated making this move when I originally went down this plan. Yeah. So I probably should have just done what I was expecting to do, but... That's how it goes when you second-guess yourself. That's right. Well, it's how it goes when you let four days go between moves and you don't <laughs> put nearly the same thought into the move when you make it versus when you planned it out four days ago. Fair enough. <laughs> Is it, I think there's, like, a notes section in the analyze board, the analysis board, right? Oh, yeah. I, I never use that. I probably should use that with you. Yeah, you probably should. I do. In, an, in like, a face-to-face live tournament, um, maybe this is different now, but at least uh, back when I was still playing in tournaments, that's actually not allowed. You're not allowed to take notes. Yeah. Um, and there was a tournament that I was in. Um, what was the – I forget the name of the club that they do some pretty high-priced purse um, tournaments. Like, they, they do the World Open, which is, like, the highest-paying – chess open in the world <laughs> yeah. um, but they also do regional ones and so i played one in cincinnati a while back that um i wasn't i didn't actually think i'd win but i like won my first two games and so i was like well i have to treat it like i'm in contention um for it to win my class like my chunk but then in my third round the guy kept on taking notes and I was like, I don't think you're allowed to do that. So I actually ended up calling the tournament director on him to be like, I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the, my opponent is taking notes. And there's been multiple times where he almost touched a piece to make a blunder, but then he looked at his notes and then he didn't do it. And I'm not sure that's allowed. And he's like, yeah, no, that's not allowed. You're allowed to keep score, but you're not allowed to take notes. So yeah. the tournament director yeah. came over and was like, you know, sir, you're not allowed to take notes. You're only allowed to keep score. I'm, and he like, Looked above it was like, is it okay if we leave the notes that he has, but just no more? I'm like, I'm fine with that. And the guy's like, okay. Then the tournament director and the guy talked to me. He's like, you didn't think I was actually cheating or anything, right? And I'm just like, uh, <laughs> like I'm pretty. Sh- I didn't say this, but I'm like, the pr- I'm pretty sure the tournament director just told you that you're cheating, and we're all being kind about it. <laughs> so if you stop cheating, <laughs> then it's okay. Um, so yeah, that's wild. I still lose sleep over this. <laughs> <laughs> that that one chess player hates me for taking notes so i'm not going to use the analysis notes on chess.com against my best friend oh god it's all i'm the lose. cheater now <laughs> no <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah you can feel bad about that finished another book today okay which, which one was that so this was the money tree by chris gillibo ah uh, yeah and um i think we talked a little bit about it on the episode that will never air um mm-hmm. but so for the listener this was a book that i started reading after i finished happy city by charles montgomery um, and i got it knowing that it was going to be a not 
well-written book, not because Chris Bilbo can't write a good book, but because the format is like incredibly cheesy um, just by its nature. It's kind of like another book called um, the, is it the King of Babylon? The Prince of Babylon? It's the richest man in Babylon. That's what it is. The richest man in Babylon where it like tells these stories and they're clearly meant just to teach you a lesson. But rather than teaching you a lesson, rather than the book author talking to you, they put these characters in these situations where they learn the lessons that he wants to teach you. There was another book I read in business school called The Goal that did a similar thing. And as you're reading these stories, it's like it, – it's even worse than the feeling of when you're watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie and you know there's going to be a twist and you're just watching for the twist. And you're like you don't even care what they're saying anymore. You're just looking to see like what's the stupid twist going to be in half an hour. That's what these books are. Is like you're, you're just reading and you're like, okay, so what's the point? I don't care that the girl is about to dump the main character. They're going to get back together in the end. What's he going to learn from the wise old man that helps him make some money and also get the girl back, right? <laughs> and, uh, and all the dialogue is just terrible, and there's a lot of like – he thought to himself why he ate another pizza of the cold pizza from last night. And like, like, oh my gosh, just like these terrible settings. But all that said, um, the lessons of the book are actually pretty good. Um and not really anything that I never think about on my own anyway, but good little reminders and kind of timely for what I needed to work on right now, which is why I picked the book up anyway. But to give you the condensed version so that you don't have to waste your time reading the book <laughs> um, <laughs> is basically a lot of people think about when they want to make some money. Like if how do you how do you go about making money in like a systemic way? Well, you could start like a a quote unquote real business where you have to have some kind of initial investment and you create this system of buying and selling. So it might be where you have to buy a storefront and you buy a bunch of stuff to put in the storefront and then people will walk in and buy it because that's what people do when they see stores. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's a, can you put the right stuff in the store in the right neighborhood where the right people will see it and then come in and buy things. That's one way of having business. And there's also sort of like this is simplified down. A second way would be things of instead of you having to figure out how to put that initial investment in, you convince investors to put initial investment in, whether that's friends and family, whether it's like the startup Silicon Valley stuff. You, you, you set up the system and idea theoretically. You convince the investors to give you the capital up front. Then you spend that capital as wisely as you can and try to – scale up the idea as quickly as possible. Um, and the book basically is a, uh, is a treatise of a third way, which is that if you are willing to start really small, you can probably find ways to make small amounts of money with what you already know, what you can already know how to do, what you already own and make a small amount of money without spending anything or spending very little. So mm -hmm. for example, in the character in this book, it was a fairly recent college graduate, maybe two, two or three years out of college. And, uh, so he started off by selling his old textbooks on eBay. And then 
the book that sold for the most money, he happened to see that there was a 10-pack of that book available in a, from a different seller. So he bought the 10-pack and then immediately listed all 10 of them as individual books as their own listing because he already had pictures, he already knew how to describe it, all that kind of stuff, but then sold 10 of them individually. So he got a better price for the 10, sold each one individually, and then just shipped them out when he got the 10-pack in. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then pretty quickly he's like, well – it that kind of simple hack is not like a great way to make a lot of money. And it's not like a thing you'd want to tell your grandparents, like, Hey, this is what I do. I buy stuff on eBay and then I resell it on eBay. (laughs) (laughs) And even economically that doesn't go very far. Right. So you're going to run into the limitations of that reselling business pretty quick. Um, But it was enough that he got a few hundred bucks going who, which he could then use that few hundred bucks to start another thing. And so he started doing like a, consulting online business and more importantly he kind of just started meeting these other people that also did small side hustles and this is kind of what chris gillibo is known for um he had a couple other books about just like starting really small businesses on top of your current job and then like if you happen to find something that's just good enough that it can get big and you can quit your current job well and great but like this way you don't have to risk uh you don't have to drop everything and start some bigger business and hope it works out. Like you, if you, if you put in a little bit of time and energy and you learn something, then it's still a win. Um, so it's a, it's a nice concept and it's a, and it's a good encouragement, I think for, uh, especially since we're in a, a rough economic time and he, he must've written this before the rough economic time since it's gotten published recently. Um, it's kind of a nice message and a nice reminder of, you know, you you already know how to do something. You you just need to think about what's that small version that doesn't require any investment and that still lets you do something and get paid for it and find how to bring that to the market. That's a that's a nifty idea, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the the millennial side hustle, right? Exactly. It, yeah, that's that's who it's for. <laughs> that's who it's yeah. written by and who it's for. Yep. But yeah, so maybe the big. If there's a takeaway from my discussion on it, it's really just that that's kind of what I'm planning on doing anyway. That's when I left my job. It was the thought of I need to leave my job because I need to be a full-time dad. So I've got a full-time job again. It's just parenting instead of earning money. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would like to do a side hustle on top of parenting. And if I can have a nice side hustle on top of parenting, then that can also pay that we can keep her going into daycare. And then I've got a lot of time where I could start something bigger again um, like I used to. So, uh, I don't know, just a really, really simple book, fast read, not really great to read, but good message and kind of the right thing for the right time. So I feel like I'm doing a good job picking books is maybe yeah. the takeaway. I'm picking good books. Nice. So I've dove into Slaughterhouse-Five by Vonnegut. Excellent. Being the uncultured child that I was, <laughs> I kind of skipped over that in my youth. So it's definitely interesting. I'm about 50 pages in now and it's, it's a little, it's a ride. That's for sure. So it's been forever since I've read that. I was probably in high school when I read it. Um, so tell me what's going on so far and just to kind of reset my brain into that mode. Cause I kind of remember the feel of the book. I don't really remember much about what happens. Uh, yeah. So it sets up the, there's a character, the main character who, uh, 
came through the war. I can't even recall his name. Damon Alex, you're putting me on the spot here. I wasn't prepped <laughs> to give a book report over the first two chapters. Is it Billy, <laughs> Billy Pilgrim? Is that his name? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, no. Maybe. Well, there's there's the character who's writing the book about Billy Pilgrim. Is that right? There's like two characters going on. Shit, Alex, I don't know. <laughs> okay, forget that I brought up this. <laughs> no, no, this is this is all staying in. God damn it. <laughs> uh, the story is told in a nonlinear order, and events become clear through flashbacks and time travel experiences from the unreliable narrator. The narrator describes the stories of Billy Pilgrim, an American man from the fictional town of Ilium, go. New York, who believes he is held in an alien zoo on the fictional planet of Tralfamador and has experienced time travel. As a chaplain's thank, assistant, thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> so yeah, the first like the first chapter is the narrator, which I thought maybe he wasn't given a name then. Maybe that's why I can't remember it. And then yeah, the second chapter is starting to introduce Billy. So does it pretty? I'm, I guess I'm scared to to mention a couple of things that I really remember feeling about the book. Yeah, I don't know, like, yeah, don't. <laughs> don't there's really not a lot has happened yet. Yeah, okay. It's just a bunch of a lot of nonsense. Not nonsense, but you know, it's kind of I don't know. I don't have the words for it. I definitely remember feeling like um, it's true of all of Vonnegut's novels. I think every paragraph you read kind of feels like, uh, like. He has some more ideas than he's really speaking about when he's writing these books. And the book is just like the whatever ended up happening. Like whatever. That's what he got out of his head. His idea was going, his head was going in like 15 different ways. And these sentences are just the one that came out of his mouth into the fingers onto the paper. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it is very all over the place at some points. Stream of conscious almost. Yeah. Well, after you read Slaughterhouse-Five, you should definitely read Cat's Cradle. <laughs> just going to go on a Vonnegut spree here? Just, actually, yeah. Just go ahead and read the entire Vonnegut uh, library collection, bibliography. <laughs> What's the right word for that? Um, I don't know. I was going to go with library. Library. Mm. I guess I shouldn't ask you. You said your words are bad. <laughs> I think bibliography is probably the right thing. Bibliography. Sounds very formal. So, yeah, sure. Did you know that he's a Hoosier? No, I didn't. Yeah, he's from Indianapolis. Wow. There are some books that he, like, talks about that pretty directly, that he's from Indianapolis. Alex with the trivia. Mm -hmm. There's a a semi-famous quote from him that's something like, um, that, like, no matter no matter where you are, what you're doing, you can rest assured there's a Hoosier doing something important or something like that. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna Google for it. I have to know what the quote was. I don't know what it is about Hoosiers, but wherever you go, there is always a Hoosier doing something very important there. Sounds about right. Maybe we should just become a book club podcast. We'll just talk books and nothing but books. That would be funny, considering how poorly read I am. You'd learn really quick. Maybe we'll be a D&D book podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and chess. you got to get some chess in there, too, obviously. Yeah. 
Oh, you know, actually, so sorry to come back to chess again, but you brought it up. It's your fault. Um, there's a there's a chess book I really like. Um, uh, oh God, it's the there's a chess book I really like. It's called Logical Chess, Move by Move, Every Move Explained, and it's by Irving Chernev, who is a pretty um, prolific chess author, Chernev. But uh, one of my favorite things, so half the book is, uh, maybe not half the book. Okay, so there's three sections to the book. The first one is the king's side attack. The second one is the queen's pawn opening. And the third one is the chess master explains his ideas, which I think, I never read that third section because I just never got far enough in the book. But I think those are all games um, where the people that played actually where they gave interviews and stuff about it afterwards. So he has like material from the actual players in it, as opposed to just analyzing it himself. Mm-hmm. What I really liked about it, um, still like about it is when, uh, I'll come up with an example. So like that first chapter is like 30 games or something, but they all start with E4. Okay, so in game number two, uh, this is one, E4. One of the best moves on the board. A pawn occupies the center, and two pieces are freed for action. 150 years ago, the great Philidor said, the game cannot better be opened than by advancing the E pawn, two squares. This advice is still good today. Only one other white first move, one D4, releases two pieces at the same time. But then if you keep on going in that chapter, and you get to find the last E4 game here. So in game 10, this one e4, this opening move makes an outlet for two pieces, the queen and the light square bishop. It does more than that. It frees the square for the king and gives an extra one to the g1 knight. It is true. The knight is best developed at f3, but there are times when it's expedient to bring it to e2. So like every one of these games, he has something like that. He has a different rationale, explanation, reason for why one e4 might be a good move. And he continues that for every single move. Um, but I just love that. And so the, in the second section, he does that for D4 too. Like he, not only are there 25 games about, uh, with games that start with D4, but at 25 times he'll tell you why D4 is a good opening move. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of thinking about, um, like what would it look like to take almost any other idea and do the exact same thing of, you know, there's like a decision tree you can go down, but you can rationalize every little bit of it. Like I'd like to make a, like a web development book, that is like ah HTML, a wonderful declarative language for explaining how things are going to be processed on a website. Let's open up your text editor and open, start open up our HTML tag, like say <laughs> ah HTML. It's a derivative of the XML markup language that was more used in processing days, but is now more appropriate for web browsing. Uh, I don't know. I, I like the idea of some kind of media where I can just like, it, this thing is a good idea. I'm going to tell you every way I can why this is a good Hammer idea. at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although you don't play E4 or D4. So I don't think you're interested in any of that. That's right. <laughs> I, could prob- I could probably come up with, you know, a solid six or seven to drive home reasons why I'm playing C4. That messes me up every time. I really got to learn how to play your openings. Well, see, here's the thing, Alex. It's, there's, I just play whatever. I don't follow the book or anything. I just play moves. <laughs> so that do I, sense. and it's always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but that's not the opening's fault. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> Alex, how do you feel about sitcoms? Um, I like sitcoms. I I can't remember really watching any recently though. We don't we don't have TV anymore. Like, yeah, but you have streaming stuff, don't you? Yeah, have streaming stuff. But I don't, and I don't think I really have streamed many sitcoms though. I what? Well, what are you doing on the lighter side of things? I know you like watching documentaries and you like your podcasts and all that stuff. But if you just want some like fictional nonsense light lighter stuff what are you what are you doing you doing anything like that hmm. i i still rewatch the simpsons a lot um the same the same first 12 seasons of the simpsons gets me by pretty well nice uh, well especially because I'm, re- I'm introducing those to the four-year-old too she like yeah that, which is hilarious oh yeah one of her favorite things is pulling out the simpsons chess set and playing with the simpsons pieces and putting a simpsons episode on the background and I have to make sure that we choose ones that like don't have anything too crazy and appropriate. Um, I don't know. We've pushed the edge a couple of times, but <laughs> it's been fine. So far, she hasn't really gotten sassier because of that. She's she's pretty sassy anyway, but she hasn't repeated any Simpsons. <laughs> it's not Simpsons' fault, at least. Right, right. Um, I remember watching. Uh, the the Netflix episodes of Arrested Development when those came out and those were really disappointing. Oh, yeah. I really loved that show back in college. Uh, yeah, I remember you watching that. I remember watching that in the apartment. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I mean, when I watched it, right? Yes, I was borrowing yeah. uh, George's DVDs of those. Um, yeah, really liked them. But yeah, the new ones were not so good. I like comedy specials yeah. a lot. That's kind of uh, you know, it's it's not fiction, it's not sitcom, but like. Um, I, but I do like that. Have you seen, did you watch Middle Edition Swartz on Netflix? I have not, no. Oh my gosh. It is like painfully funny. It is. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry to take, I know you you brought up sitcoms, but I'm moving you No, on. it's fine. That's, that's whatever. Uh, but um, so Middle Edition Swartz is, uh, it's the guy from Silicon Valley um, and a guy from Parks and Recreation. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure they have done other stuff, but that's that's how I know them from. Um, sure. And they're just doing this like long form improv um, where, so it's just them and a couple chairs and they're mic'd up and they have like a conversation with uh, a person in the audience for five minutes. And then they kind of take all the pieces of their conversation with the person in the audience and they make these little scenes out of them. Uh, but it's like just long enough where y- you wonder how they can keep going. You know, normally, like if if you gave me a prompt, I could make a prompt of fiction to last a minute, two minutes, right? I could say if, I could get a few yeah. sentences out with go off your prompt, and they go for forty five minutes minimum, <laughs> and um, awesome. and it's actually pretty. It's really incredible how willing they are to like uh, like admit admit, admit their mistakes. Like they'll forget characters' names and stuff like that. Um, like they do this move where they will – they don't – like if, if I played character Amy and you played character Beth, if uh-huh. you then move away from Beth and start playing Charlie 
even though I'm angry right now, I can move in and play Beth if Beth needs to talk to Charlie. And so you made the character Beth, but I could take it over if we need to. Um, and so they sure. switch off. Really, but like they'll do things like uh, – so Charlie has a crazy New York accent, but then the other guy doesn't do a New York accent as well. <laughs> <laughs> and so then they lose track of like, wait a minute. Are you doing the New York accent or are you doing the British accent? Like, <laughs> and like I don't know. And like so they, they will often kind of like have these little breaks. I think it maybe happens a little bit in each episode of wait a minute. So are you this person? And we're and we're going to the zoo. Right? And like, yeah, they have to like confirm this is who we are and this is what we're doing, right? Right? I th- but I thought you were over there. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, so they, they fess up to their mistakes so well. Um, and the, but they're all just crazy. And you just like it. My side was literally hurting when I watched each. There's only three episodes of it, but each time it was like it, it was so funny, but also genuinely painful sometimes of like, you've gotten, you, you all have gotten yourselves into a place. You're not going to get out of this. This is not going to be easy. You're not going to tie this all together. <laughs> and yeah, I, I recommend watching it. There's also a great episode of reconcilable differences where, uh, which is a podcast uh, where they talk about middle distance sports. And I'll put that in the notes for everybody to listen to. So watch the show, listen to that podcast. It's very funny. So uh, since you brought up sitcoms, I, I take it that means that you that you do like sitcoms and you have been watching sitcoms. Of course. Sitcoms. I love sitcoms. That might be like my most watched genre of television. Really? Oh, it is by far, actually. Yeah, but I don't watch a lot of television to start with, though. So, But uh, I've been re-watching Community, which is a little sitcom. Ah, you uh, did talk to me about Community for a while because we watched yeah. the D&D episode. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. But it, it came out in the early 2010s and uh, just recently got put up on Netflix. So I, but, but the past month I've been rewatching that. I finally got around to the last season, uh, which they had taken. It used to be on one of the big commercial networks. Mm-hmm. and uh, But like they got dropped by its last season. It was just on like Yahoo. So I hadn't seen the last season. So it was nice to wrap it up and see the ending. It did its last season on Yahoo? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yahoo's really done everything. Like, they have tried to be every service in every way. It just seems to yeah. always fail. Poor Yahoo. <laughs> and well, I mean, they're still, they're still kicking, I guess. I guess. Technically. <laughs> Describe kicking. What does that even mean? Yeah. I, <laughs> I imagine there's still a lot of people that never got rid of their Yahoo email address. It's true. There's a lot of people who play fantasy football on Yahoo. The last thing I remember hearing about Yahoo was because Yahoo owned Tumblr, but then they sold Tumblr to Automatic, which is the company I used to work for. Uh, yeah. And I didn't they, know that. Yeah. So actually, they're, and they're switching all the like the backend technology of it. So then Tumblr is going to run on WordPress now. I don't know. I'm sure that's like a huge project that is still ongoing, but uh, yeah, that's kind of wild. Yeah, huh. yeah. In, in terms of tech news, I, that's actually a really big deal. But yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't follow any of that stuff, but of course, you know, being around teaching teenage girls, I hear all about Tumblr. Oh, Tumblr is big. Uh, well, the the scary thing is, I I think. Tumblr was probably the way that a, a lot of young people were introduced to porn for the first time. And uh, that's kind of going away now. So it's the end of an era. 
That's fine with that. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So, walking with Einstein. <laughs> All right. So yeah, let's let's talk. Let's get into that. So, um, uh, since this is becoming a book podcast, every time we record, um, yikes! This this is now a Moonwalking with Einstein stand account. Uh, that's all we talk about is how we both <laughs> read the book Moonwalking with Einstein. We are we we read books. The two we of us read books here. Right. mostly this one book and <laughs> we keep on saying we're going to talk about it but this is the book <laughs> so um for uh this is spoiler horn anybody that uh wants to read the 2011 book walking with einstein by joshua four uh, if you don't want to have the narrative parts of this book ruined for you then this is your moment to pod the podcast go read the book come back and listen to it again uh, so what did you think of the book, Danny? Oh, I liked it. It was it was definitely an enjoyable read, just the way he presented it and the actual narrative itself. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, I had never heard of some of this stuff before, but I think you kind of had an idea coming in. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd heard of the, the memory palace uh, technique. I think, I think maybe the first time I'd heard of that technique was watching Sherlock. Um because there's a couple of times where Sherlock mentions that he's going into his memory palace. And at, at one episode, there's some point where there's one of the bad guys uses a memory palace to like, to like a huge effect. Um, not, not just like, a, like he, I don't, I don't want to ruin Sherlock on top of this, but, <laughs> right. but like uh, where I guess it's kind of alluded to that. This is kind of how Sherlock remembers all his stuff too, that he, this is how he remembers all the streets in London and where they are. Yeah, and it's how he remembers all the little facts that he collects and the 200 different kinds of smoking tobacco that you can find and all that kind of things. Um, <laughs> but then he a bad guy that uses it to remember, like, everything about everyone in the world. Um, <laughs> but uh, but probably actually like the, where I really learned about the idea that there was memory competitions and that there was that this was like it's all niche community was on the Tim Ferriss podcast, uh, Ed Cook was interviewed on it because he is involved in this, uh, you know, professional memorizer, uh, circuit, but then he also owns this company called memorize M E M R I S E, which I think makes a lot of its marketing around learning languages. It's kind of a glorified flashcard program. Um, it's like a, like a very different approach from like a Duolingo, but, uh, I think I think a lot of people that are wanting to learn how to memorize things, they are trying to memorize vocabulary of another language. So that's kind of what they do. But Ed Cook is one of the co-founders of that. And in his interviewing with Tim Ferriss, he talked about the memory palace technique. And they did some contest where the first person that learned how to memorize a deck of cards using memorize um, got $100 or something. And somebody did it in like an hour. Um <laughs> And yeah, so I kind of knew that this existed, that there were these memory competitions, um, but I never actually, you know, I, I guess I stored it away as this was a something that some people did, but not that there was any merit to it <laughs> or that it was interesting. <laughs> like, it just didn't really hit me. 
but then yeah. really recently I watched this Netflix documentary called Memory Games. Uh, and that was really well done. And that got me into reading this book where uh, I think a lot of people quote this book as like the thing that notes it. So this is this is the moment where I, we truly know the memory competition world. See, I thought some of it, I had to like double check and make sure it was it was factual and not just like some kind of fiction. Like some of the characters, especially the way he presents them at the beginning of the book, they're just kind of absurd. Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure that he didn't make up any of this. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sure. I know. But like, just like the characterizations are just kind of wild with some of these, some of those guys. It's like, did he really get, yeah, well, I guess. All right. He went to this competition and these people act like this and yeah, it's real. Yeah. The the Netflix documentary does a, a much like there's a lot more intent around making the people look more normal. Um, <laughs> I think there probably are a lot of much more normal people um, involved in it. And I guess maybe he talks about sure. that in the book a little bit where especially the Americans that are like that where all the Europeans yeah. like, look down the Americans because they don't spend the hours a day like <laughs> studying it yeah. much. And it, yeah, which I actually found that part really enjoyable where they're like. The, the the British guys look around the American championship and they say, oh, yeah, you're just the normal American dude. You, you can totally win this next year if you want. Like, and, like they, nobody here is so good that you can't beat them with a year of training, with one year of training. Like, how many things like that exist where, like, <laughs> you can be the national champion or something with one year of training? Um, well, and then he did he did decent in the, the world, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And my understanding now, so this was nine years ago. That that's sure. not really the case anymore. That it's yeah, it makes sense. It's gotten just big enough that like, I think it's still true that the American champions, for the most part, um, like I think, well, I take that back. I think like the reigning world champion actually is an American, um, hmm. but the uh, it, in general, the it's still a much very like a very European and Asian dominated uh, sport. Sure. So there's a. Maybe the thing that's kind of most interesting about the book is that it's – I think it does a really good job of showing how there is – there are these people that place memory at such a high importance that they say that that everything kind of comes boiling back to memory. But it constantly bringing you back to the reality that like all these people that have the best memories aren't necessarily like living the most impressive of lives. So they're not, and they and they find a lot more enjoyment out of like memorizing things than using those memory abilities for something. It's like sure. it kind of reminds me of like the computer scientists that are professors at universities, and they understand computer science far better than I ever would. But like I build more things with programming than they do, mm-hmm. um, applied versus knowledge, right? And so all these people are the they they actually have the knowledge. They 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 know how it all really works at the deepest level, and but there, there's an application that is probably better, but a lot of the applications end up like meeting a local maximum of utility, um, yeah. which we can come back to. But I guess, so when you're reading this book, did you feel like, uh, does it convince you to memorize more things? No, not at all. <laughs> like, I mean, the only reason I would want to is kind of the party trick stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I can memorize everyone's phone number in here, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, 
there's not a lot of it's kind of like you're saying i don't i don't really know the practical value of a lot of the techniques aside from like prepping for like an exam or something like that it could be mm -hmm. useful for college kids but mm, yeah in the real world you just google it yeah and i've actually really thought about that like i used to take that the total opposite stance of, of these memorizers where that that like you're just saying like if it's if you need to know it, you can Google for it. And then that I, I used to pretty proudly say, if it's worth knowing, it's worth looking up. So mm -hmm. don't waste your brain power trying to remember things when you could spend your brain power thinking deeply about problems and solving them because solving problems has a lot of value in the world personally sure. and for other people and for organizations and whatnot. Um, and, and there's, I think that, there's no qualms about even though these people are memorizing way more information and they can take a lot of information, and memorize it. It still takes a lot of time practicing. And even if they wanted to memorize, say, um, poetry or people were talking about memorizing all of war and peace, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's really impressive. And yeah. I, I could see where if you memorize great works like that, there's actually a lot of like learning to be gained. Um, mm -hmm. just because not only have you read it, but you read it and memorized it and could go back and quote it anytime. And like, I'm, I'm not religious, but if, uh, if someone did that with the Bible, like that would be really important. Um, but you could still spend that time <laughs> doing other things. It's, it's not a free activity. <laughs> you spend exactly. a lot of time doing yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I guess the takeaway that, the, that the memorizers and the author of this then present is that it's worth reckoning that your your working memory is pretty terrible. You can remember, what did they say, like seven things, five to seven things. But mm -hmm. uh, so that's why if you like read a paragraph of a book and then uh, in the book they do this, like they give you a sentence and then they you read a paragraph and they say, okay, what did that other sentence say? And you can't remember it. So if you yeah. do want to remember something, you have to find a way of like making it a bigger idea, sticking it in your storage, and then train yourself to be able to look back in that storage. And it's a a really nice contrast of hey we're like we're doing the same thing of to your brain as when you're doing rote memorization, which is you just repeat it so many times that it kind of creates a clog that gets stuck in your brain. <laughs> That's rote memorization. <laughs> but this is the trick of um, kind of visualizing ideas is like it's much better than a clog. It's it's a nice uh, instead of a Instead of like an odd object stuck in a box, this is a box in a box. It's a box perfectly meant for this, right? And it's a, it's a beautiful way of putting things in an order and then you can go back and look for them wherever you want. Did we, did we say what this memory palace technique is? Did we talk about that? No, not really. Okay. You're kind of – yeah, you're kind of describing it pretty well though as you do this little curve of forgetting thing. Well, why don't you say what this memory palace is because I'm clearly bouncing around a lot of places. Well, um, it's, it's like you said. You take – something you have very concrete visualization in your head already. Um, so I think the, one of the first places the author went to was like a childhood home mm -hmm. and uh, you just picture every detail and you place things that you want to remember in very specific spots. So like he would start at the mailbox and he would put, you know, whatever he wanted to remember at the mailbox. And then as he was walking up his driveway, there'd be another thing. And so like this chain through these places you already have built in your head 
um, as you're journeying through, you see um, all these memories, all these things you want to remember. If you, you want to add on that. No, that's perfect. Um, did you try doing it at all? No, not really. <laughs> the, the, it is, I'm going to steal a line from somebody in that documentary. It's so much easier done than explained. Like, mm-hmm. um, and the key that I've, so I, I did it a little bit. I didn't, I didn't do very much. I did learn how to do a half deck of cards. I can do nine through ace. And the thing that I, what I really found was like it's it's harder to develop the system of um, how you create those attachment like those visualizations that you're really attached to, mm-hmm. but the more like naturally emotionally you feel each of these items, the the easier it is to to just kind of take a walk and you see the things. Um, mm-hmm. Like so, one example of. Um, mm, so whenever you're trying to memorize like nonsense information, like a deck of cards, you obviously you're not putting the literal card of the ace of spades next to your mailbox. Instead, mm-hmm. you come up with something that would evoke the ace of spades and you put that next to the mailbox. So if you're really into sports, maybe you'd use sports figures for all of your spades. So maybe the ace of spades is like um, Michael Jordan because he was just at the top for so long. But then maybe the king of spades is LeBron James because he's the top now. Is that true? I don't know. I don't actually know sports. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but the thing that I found was um, when I was trying to make that, that's called a, there's a, it's called a person action object system. So for each of these cards, you have to have a person in an action that you would associate with that person and then an object that goes with what that person is doing. So Michael Jordan slam dunking a basketball. Uh, but the, what I found was I, I would try to make these like really logical conclusions. Like what I just did, like maybe spades are all sports. The, the best sports person I can think of is Michael Jordan and LeBron James is, is the King. Uh, but actually if you don't feel anything about LeBron James, it's terrible. Like the, 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 even though you can, you can logically say that he's the King cause he's the best, like if you don't have any connection to basketball, it's a terrible choice. You'd be better off choosing like I might choose Magnus Carlson. Why? Because I actually kind of care about chess, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like in, in, so in it's like that I can, I can imagine Magnus Carlson way more than I can imagine LeBron James. Um, but even sillier is uh, you can imagine things that like, even though it's the king, I might choose something that's like not important at all. But for whatever reason, maybe there was like a dog that's important to me, but has the their name started with K, so K for king and Kaylee the dog. Um, and whatever actually resonates with you, that's the thing you choose because that's what you're going to actually remember. If you try to rote remember your connection, it doesn't ever stick. You have to actually things you have to have people and actions and objects that for whatever reason feel a certain way um, because then when you're like walking through the memory palace um, you as you enter the room or you hit the new location you just kind of feel what's there and you remember how to look at it and you can make really vivid it's, it's really cool to kind of dive into it. it it's honestly worth it's worth going through the experience even though the end result is kind of stupid <laughs> yeah 
I have a hard time saying that everybody should learn how to memorize a deck of cards because you're going to need to memorize a deck of cards. But I think everyone should learn how to memorize a deck of cards. Or, I mean, I did a half deck. I think everybody could do a half deck. Just because, like, that feeling of I go to my front door and I see my mom making spaghetti, but it's not spaghetti. It's uh, a bunch of tennis rackets. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> that's a bizarre thing. <laughs> um. I think the author in Muark with Einstein said something about like, you know, he mentioned his grandmother about to perform some terrible sexual act. And was like, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Had to, had to take my grandmother out of the system. <laughs> yeah. So it really becomes an exercise in creativity at the end of it, at the end of it all. Absolutely. It's like what images can you evoke that are going to stick that are just so unique that you're not going to mix it up with other things. Right. Right. Cause it really is like, it engages your whole system. You yeah, feel it. And that's you why see it sticks it. so much better. Yeah. I underlined in our notes, I wanted to talk about the chicken sexing. Do you remember the chicken sexing part? <laughs> I do remember the chicken. <laughs> I didn't even have to go back and look at that. Cause that, that stuck with me. Pretty... <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised when I read that I didn't, we didn't have a little text conversation. I definitely meant to. <laughs> Because I was like, Alex, we're both unemployed. Let's just become chicken sexers. That's right. <laughs> so for the listener, uh, this is a very highly paid skill. Um, when when chickens are very small, when they're little chicks, it is very difficult to tell whether they are male or female. But it's very important to the industry to be able to separate out the, the males and females because the farmers want the females, not the males. For a number of reasons. But the important thing is that it's hard to differentiate the two. But so there's this whole like trained class of people that can look at these chickens' butts and figure out if they're male or female <laughs> at a younger age so that they can be shipped in the right place. And they have to have some incredible accuracy. What was like 99.05% accuracy. Um, Otherwise, they're kind of useless to the industry. But like that difference was millions of dollars at scale. And so these are very highly paid people. But then when you actually ask them like how they do it, after some initial education, it becomes like a feeling of intuition is how they do it. Like They can just look at the butt and they can tell whether it's male or female. Am I getting this right? Am I explaining this yeah, as you took it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's more to that notion, I think, in the book. But the fact that it's chicken sexing, like, <laughs> it just really sticks out. <laughs> That's funny. Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just be the memory. It becomes so intuitive at that point. It's just, uh... yeah, I can't really make the connection right now either. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things it brings up chess, this is a really chess heavy episode, but uh he he connected the chicken to the chicken sexing to also the way chess masters think where like sometimes the move just sticks out to you and you say that's that's the move uh, yeah and i'm still i'm back on the watching chess streamers train mm -hmm. and uh I, a lot of times you'll hear them say like this doesn't look right and mm -hmm. like they can't like pinpoint it but they're just like this doesn't look right what's wrong with this mm -hmm. it's just that kind of intuition which is really impressive because then they, given enough time, they can then figure out why. But like when you're playing the yeah. game, you don't have that time. Time pressure is an actual part of chess. Um, 
But then in analysis days later, they can really point out to like, well, this is actually why it was really good, but just no one's ever played that before. <laughs> um, or this was really bad. My intuition was totally right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever watch, there's a documentary that came out about um, the, the AI that kind of, that beat all the Go players. Yeah, I did watch that. And that one, that was a really good documentary. <laughs> and, yeah. um, oh gosh, what, but what was it called? It was AlphaGo. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And they talked about how like in the big match where it was AlphaGo versus like the world champion, the world champion that had been that for a decade and was kind of like the, 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 the last human to, to kind of put a go against this, but like both the AI and the human world champion had in different games, like found these individual moves that broke the rest of the go world's understanding that there was one move that made no sense to anybody watching it. The AI made, but the programmers were like, Oh no, there's a bug. Like there's a problem. That's not a move that you make. But then they're like, but alpha goes a better go player than all of us. So yeah. how can we distrust it? And like, it turned out, it's like, no, that's an incredible move. But then the very next game, the human like kind of did the same thing where he's like, I don't know. I just felt that that was the move and I had to do it. And I couldn't explain it at the time, but then it worked out like, and it's beautiful in that way. Um, sorry, spoilers for alpha go. <laughs> Hmm. So, so maybe that's really the takeaway of the book is that there's something beautiful about um, using your brain to a sense that it really becomes an extra sense that you that you feel your brain more than just interact with it. It sure. can be a really beautiful thing. Maybe to end the discussion on this, I want to talk about another one of the weird bits of it um, that I think people will find entertaining. Um, this ritual of joining the secret club of uh, memorizers. <laughs> uh, do you recall all the steps of the ritual? Oh, the only thing I remember was kissing a woman's knee or something like yeah. that. So I think it was. I, I could be wrong. Um, it, I think it was. You had to memorize uh, 42 numbers, drink two beers, and kiss three women all in seven minutes or something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. But it seemed like they settled for like kisses on the cheek or I think they even said like there's somebody like did one where they kissed them on the knee. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the author (laughs) did that. Yeah. (laughs) It's just bizarre. I, it, it just made me wonder like, uh, maybe we all also need to like, have a little more bizarreness in our life. Kind of like that. Like, I think all those people got a real joy out of knowing that like to be in our club, you got to be a little weird. You're going to do this really weird thing. If you want to hang out with us. I mean, I think at that point they're all past it. Cause even earlier in the book, the author was talking about like how he was embarrassed to be in his like parents' basement with like blinders on. And <laughs> so like to even get that close, you have to like put aside all personal shame. Yeah. All right. Well, so, um, but we both agree we're not going to start memorizing everything. Um, I actually really love to do systems and the idea of like, when you think you need something, you need to remember it, get it out of your brain right away. Don't even dare try to remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be converting to anything. I always, 
carry a, a nice little spiral notebook around with me that I jot the important things down in. I will not be deviating from that after this book. Yeah, I, I, I'm the same way. It didn't. It it sparked my interest enough that like I want I wanted to kind of get a feel for the technique. And I and I I I must admit there was a part of me that said this is how I'm going to learn to beat Danny at chess again. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to memorize all the openings. I'm going to <laughs> like this is how I'm going to move from Potzer to club level player. And it's like, all, I, but now the reality is you just need to be playing a bunch, which is what I'm doing. Right. And so it just becomes intuitive. Right. Again. That's, I think that's the reality of it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, good book. I think, um, I think everybody would get, I think anybody would get a kick out of it. Um, yeah, I agree. And it's uh, it's a very fun read. I, I couldn't, I also could not stop reading it once I got going. I thought it was very fun. Um, I think I told you once I got bogged down, there was some, there was like a chapter that was, it got a little historical and that bogged me down a little mm-hmm. bit, but I'd say, you know, a solid like 90% of the book was very, very easy, enjoyable reading. Yeah. Well, and the nice bits is like, you can tell when you're in the narrative parts and when you're in like the informational parts. So if you're in an informational yeah. part and you're just like, you're just not digging it, start skimming and yep. you'll pretty clearly come back to the narrative at some point and and all that's really enjoyable um i don't, I don't think yep. anybody would not enjoy that so <laughs> cool moonwalking with einstein joshua four enjoy